0: And it was also one of those uh, disciplines that where law and business intersect, where you see how law works really to enhance somebody's rights to help a business grow and to how, how, how you can maintain that growth.
1: That's my guest on today's show, Regina Quick. Reggie is the director and head of IP practice at Singapore-based IP firm One Legal. In our wide-ranging conversation, Reggie shares how she got her start in the IP profession and her decision to start her own firm, One Legal. She discusses the importance of friendship and building a trusted network of friends from around the world, along with her role as second deputy secretary general in the AIPPI Bureau. And as the global IP community prepares for the interannual meeting in May, Reggie shares some of her favorite things to do in Singapore. I'm your host, Justin Simpson. I'm an Australian patent attorney and founder of Build Trader. Welcome to Talking IP, a podcast for IP professionals featuring conversations that take you inside the professional lives and careers of global IP leaders and entrepreneurs. I hope you enjoyed the show. Regina Quick, welcome to Talking IP.
0: Thank you very much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: Uh, it's lovely to see you. It's been a little while since we've seen each other, but I think we were we were very young when we first uh, met. When you're still young, but uh, <laughs> I think it was like way back in 2000 or something like that.
0: Yes, at least at least it's been a long time. Yes,
1: it's been a long time. Uh, and I never thought, as I was building Enovia, uh, that I would necessarily do much work in Singapore or in Brazil or in Italy. But you and our group of friends uh, helped make Enovia happen. So I'm I'm forever grateful for your assistance there.
0: Not at all. Friendship. Friendship goes a long way. And we had friends across the world. We still do. That's the wonderful thing about the IP profession.
1: It is. It is. And we're going to get into that. What I want to touch on first is having a look at INTER, the INTER, International Trademark Association. Uh, Very excited. uh, I'm sure you are that it's coming to Singapore in a few weeks' time in May. What does One Legal have planned for that event?
0: Oh, we've got a party planned for our friends. Um, We will finalize the details, send the invites out, and we look forward to welcome our closest and dearest friends from around the world. It's been a long time coming. I mean, it was supposed to be here a couple of years ago, and COVID um, sort of interfered with those plans, but I'm so glad it's finally happening
1: it's been a tough couple of years conference wise and i guess business development wise but great to see that uh, that inter is making the uh, making the effort to come all the way over to the other side of the world
0: yes absolutely finally
1: yes And there are going to be a lot of international people, perhaps haven't come to Singapore before. I've been there a few times. It's a wonderful city, but you've lived there uh, for many years. I don't know if it's all your life, but you've probably got some favorite parts of Singapore. What would you recommend? If someone's coming to visit for a few days, if they take a couple of extra days, what do you think they should see or do in Singapore while they're there?
0: Well, one of of my favorite sort of tourist destinations is the night safari. That's the night zoo. And I think that's I. Well, I go there even not as a tourist. You know, I mean, I live here and I still go there. You see, you get to see the animals in the natural environment at night when they're actually active, and it's beautifully done. And the lighting is uh, intended to simulate moonlight, and it works very well. And it combines the other thing that I like, I like to walk. So it's, it's got a good uh, tram system. So if you don't like the walking part, that's available. And it's also available for you just to wander through the park, so that's really nice.
1: I would heartily endorse that. I think I've actually done that uh, part of the APAA conference in Singapore many years ago. I was fascinated by the, the rhinoceroses look quite different from the African ones. They sort of have a armor on, on them.
0: Yes, well, rhinoceroses do. I mean, I, I I remember wanting to go on safari one year and having a friend of mine from South Africa tell me of the time she was chased by a rhinoceros in a car. So I'm afraid that's, that wasn't a great sell, but but they are dangerous animals
1: too. But the Singapore one, they've got large ditches between you and the air, So you feel like you're close, but they can't get you. Yes, yes.
0: And that's the nice thing about it. It feels like a natural environment, you know, so you don't see fences because I actually don't like to see a situation where the animal is caged. So, you know, they can't get at you, you know, you um conserved. It's a conservation objective as well. Um, and yet you see them in what would be as natural a habitat as possible.
1: Well, that sounds great. I'm sure a lot of people will come and visit that one. Is there any sort of restaurants or jazz clubs or that, that you recommend? I know uh, Singapore's got a great nightlife. I'm not sure whether you're still uh, raging at parties at, uh, with, a, with a family that you have. <laughs>
0: I'm not raging at parties, but there are a couple of jazz clubs. But the restaurant scene is active. There are many, many good restaurants. I mean, one of the good ones is Labyrinth, where um, and that is at the Senat the uh, Theatre, the general area. The other thing that one must not overlook is also the street and hawker scene because the hawker fair in Singapore is excellent. So the good thing about Singapore is you can eat at both ends of the scale. You can spend $500 per person and that you can do very easily. Uh, another good restaurant, there are many good restaurants at MBS where the, where the meeting is being held. Wakugin is there. There you can easily spend five to $600 per person. And we're talking before drinks. And <laughs> yes, <laughs> on the other hand, you can spend $5 a person and that is just as good different but just as good
1: and you get the 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 atmosphere of the night markets or uh, walking along and just choosing something as you go
0: yes not so much night markets anymore but um, the hawker centers some of them are within the malls there's some very good food within the malls in those uh, sort of food courts but there is also really just the hawker centers in so the housing estates where people live and you will find you always know which is the good one, because that is the one with a ten-person queue in front of it. <laughs> that that doesn't dissipate. You can join a ten-person queue, and where you're in front, you look back, and there's another. There's still a, there's still a queue behind you, and you always know. That's how we choose. We go to a to a to us to, to a rest to a hawker center you've not been to, and you look for the one with the longest queue.
1: Sounds like a very good tip. Looks like uh, the international visitors are going to be on a good thing when they come to uh, Singapore. Hope it all goes well for your firm and uh, and I think uh, the interconference is going to be great. I think we've got some of our team members coming there, which will be a great uh, a great event. I want to uh, step back now to uh, to the very early days of your IP career. Uh, I know you're more on the trademark uh, side when you got beginning uh, the start of your career. How did you get started in IP? What did you what was your first job in IP and how did you find out about IP to begin with?
0: Oh, my, my first job was a litigation lawyer. I was a um, pupil at that time. They call it pupillage. Now it's called a a training traineeship. I trained under one of, at that time, uh, one of the top uh, litigators in Singapore. Uh, He was Harry Lyas. He's passed now. That was a long time ago. I was his pupil. And then after that, I was his assistant and I did purely litigation for two and a half years and it was um and because of who he was and what he did i also it was also some of the larger cases in singapore um and it was a pure litigation firm but at that firm also we had one or two trademark cases that came by and it was interesting for me i had taken ip As uh, as an elective at school in law school, and it was also one of those uh, disciplines that where law and business intersect, where you see how law works really to enhance somebody's rights, to help a business grow, and to how 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 you can maintain that growth, and how you can get that edge over somebody else, and and it's about competition and how an innovation, and how you build on what other people have done and how you make it better. There's a constant growth. There's a constant movement. there's There's a constant striving to be better and to be bigger, to be more creative. And it's that creative energy that I really enjoyed. When I was a litigator, I also realized that while litigation is very broad, I also had a very narrow look at the world of, of, of lawyering. The first time I looked at a um, what is really a standard contract for everybody, a sale and purchase of a piece of property. Everybody goes through this, you buy your first home. The first look I had at that document, I was trying to break it <laughs> because I was looking at it as a litigator on one side and I realized how how narrow that view is because there's not you you're breaking things or you know creating outs and you're not creating something new. I looked at other parts of the legal practice I looked at matrimonial law and I realized I couldn't do it didn't have that sync with what I enjoyed but trademarks did and it was trademarks at that time because we had no patents law we are looking at the 19, 19- the early 1990s i don't know if people still remember that kind of um, you know age in singapore where you could walk down Orchard Road and get and get copy watches you know someone comes along with a long coat and uh, and flips it open and says, <laughs> do, you, do you want a watch a copy watch and that of course is not, no longer part of what you do in singapore you you can't do that in singapore you don't have that anymore so yeah and i realized that um in time singapore must move towards intellectual property singapore as a country is really just so large we, there's only a certain amount of space and we cannot go continue with manufacturing it must move into the sphere of intellectual property i was also in a firm that didn't have any any department or any any focus in it so i started it at that point where there was an opportunity and I went to my boss and asked if it was possible, and why, why don't we have it, and should we have it? And I'm very grateful he allowed me to do that, and I started traveling. And I started to, with other, another partner at that time, but but really, I started it to to gain traction to, with, with corporate clients that we had at that point. We looked at how we protected their rights around the world. That was very challenging because I had no friends around the world, no contacts, <laughs> nobody. We had work to work to do around the world, I had trademarks to file in many, many countries. I remember, I think the first time I went to Inter, I had, I know, I had 700 or something applications around the world to file for clients, but no one. I knew nobody. And my first intern, nobody wanted to know me. I didn't know anybody. Nobody wanted to know me. You were just some young kid off the block from a country no one had ever heard of.
1: But you had the applications to give. You you had the the secret sauce to, to build these relationships.
0: Yeah, well, I did. But, you know, when you're very young, it's also very intimidating. Inter in those days... Okay, four thousand people it was a lot of people. I know it's a lot more now, but four thousand in my first—you actually it was USCA then—was really, really intimidating and filled with people who knew everybody else. Everybody knew everybody else. I didn't know anybody, but everybody knew everybody else, and nobody wanted to talk to me. And you know, and I'm also fairly short.
1: So you were overlooked.
0: I yeah, well, literally, yes. But it was, um, but yeah, it was an age ago. And I realized at that point, um, it's very hard to do it on our own, you know, you do need friends you need to form a good network of people you can trust, people you like, people you want to work with. Um, and then I started to forge friendships. I mean, business will come with it. I'm sure we all work with friends, but it is more important to be a good person that everybody likes. And that you like people, you have those great, good relationships. Because I think at any one point you could have a chestnut in the fire that you need someone to help you out. Someone else could be, could have their chestnuts in the fire and they need you to do that for them in the middle of the night at some point. And all of us have experienced that. And with those friendships and networks around the world, you can get those chestnuts out and your clients are protected. And your friendships are forged and maintained.
1: I remember being being very, very early in my career, similar similar sort of thing. I think I was 26. No, it was 1996, I must have been 23, uh, going to the APAA conference for the first time, similar situation, didn't know anyone. And uh, uh, the APA had a lot of uh, uh, sort of the 50 year old Japanese men, and uh, I was trying to make conversations with them. It was hard work. They're very nice people, but it was hard work. And I just kept exhausted at the end of the day. Go to bed at seven thirty because I'd just been talking all day. It was difficult. And then one day I stayed out till eight thirty, and I think I met you and I met uh, Marcelo from Brazil, who are all friends. And then I knew everyone because you had uh, you had the people. So I just hung around you guys, and you introduced me to the next person. So it it became a lot more uh, enjoyable just chatting with friends rather than rather than hard work.
0: Yes, and the thing is, friends are friends are the best friends because because you know, they're good people. Good people attract good people.
1: They've been vetted by your previous friends, which are good, good I'll use that. Friends of friends are the best friends. <laughs>
0: well, yeah, I mean, I've also said this to you and it's true, good friends are made at 12 out about midnight, you know, more or less, good friends. <laughs> friends for life, that's made at four in the morning.
1: <laughs> I remember you saying that. Uh, and the less you talk about the business, the better. And then then later, later business, business comes. Yeah,
0: business will flow, it's a relationships.
1: You, you, you talked about even within the firm that you were at, you started the IP division within your firm, so you're already entrepreneurial. Uh, then at some stage, you decided to go and form One Legal. Tell me about that decision to go out and form your own firm. I
0: started in Harry Larson Partners, and that was in 1992, 93. I formed the IP practice there, the trademark practice. I moved in, gosh, 1997, I think, to a corporate firm, uh, sort of mid-sized as well because, and I was a partner, head of the IP team there because I needed, by that time, my clients needed corporate support. So I've only moved three jobs in my life. The last one (laughs) was when I opened the firm. I opened one legal in 2005 with another partner. Tracy Chen, she did, she has the corporate and banking practice. Later, um, we had another partner, Mr. Wong, who joined us a couple of years later. But basically, it was formed in 2005, and there was a banking corporate practice together with IP practice. And by that time, we had patents as well, uh, because that started in the previous firm. And I took my team with me. So, my team... Uh, and our clients, and, um, yeah, all our lawyers.
1: I, I do remember you uh, sending an email around to some of your IP friends saying, uh, I'm thinking about the name of One Legal. What do you reckon of that name? Uh, have you, do you know any law firms with that? And everyone gave it a, they gave it a thumbs up. So uh, you didn't start from scratch. You had a team. You had the clients, and they came all across. Bit of a risk, though, to, uh, to do that and hope that the clients come with you.
0: Well, I think fear is the greatest obstacle. I mean, fear. I mean, and also the, the thing is, I realized I had other people to think about. I had my team who came with me, people who had faith in me. They all had husbands, spouses, they had families, they had children, they had mortgages, you know? So they took a risk. And it was that faith that, and and the, the idea that, oh, I can't fail them. We have to make it work. So we all work. All of us work silly hours in those days just to put it together. It was a real. You know, you have to learn stuff you never dreamed about. Um, things you thought you'd left behind, accounts, math. <laughs> you know, Try, trying to make all these things work more than the credit card bill. You know, <laughs> and and after a while you realize, okay, so it's not it's not impossible. You do need those skills, and if you do, you know life is the greatest teacher if you need it you will find some way of acquiring it and so and so i did and the the thing is also to be i think it's important to be humble and and enough to ask for help help is the is the the bravest word you can ask you can say i think you know if you say help then you open yourself to possibilities of people, kindness, and and there were lots of people, and and yes, I think God's grace helps all this happen along the way.
1: You always sound so wise, full of wisdom. <laughs> um,
0: well, not always, not not always, but thank you. <laughs> That's how we know we're friends. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and we don't tell any bad stories about that, where it's all just to keep keep those uh, on the professional levels. Obviously, uh, when people start a new firm, they don't realize there's, there's so many different things to be to be done. I, I remember we had, uh, I don't know if you remember, David Nelson, who was uh, came in as our CEO of Novia for a while. He had an MBA. And I said to him at one point, do you think I should go and get an MBA? This was maybe six or seven years into running the business. And he said, day-to-day running the business, you know everything there's going to be in an MBA anyway. You kind of done MBA on the fly. Do you feel that way?
0: I don't know exactly what it would entail. I mean, you know, the day-to-day running, um, I think the advantage is that I had the day-to-day running of my practice before I, which was part of a part of a firm. Mm. So you already, I already did the marketing, I already did the sort of business planning. I had to do that with my previous senior partners, but um, the actual running of the firm, things like um, rent, <laughs> um, you know payroll wow you know in singapore you have a concept like cpf and um or, or things like um just oh hiring new people um just you know wow we've got people to clean the offices Wow, that doesn't
1: <laughs> doesn't happen by magic
0: it doesn't happen by magic Then are no else you know so all that that is part and parcel of a large firm that have a whole team to deal with it. Um, even things like, simple things like issuing a bill, you know? Of course, now, now you have software and all that. And of course, now in our firm, that's all integrated. And we do have a team that deals with all these other things. But when you, when we start, when I started with, I think there were seven of us, uh, seven women plugged out there for women, but seven women who started it. So you, you, and none of us had ever run a firm. All of us had, both of us, I started with Tracy. Both of us had been partners in a larger firm. So all of us had a separate department that did all this stuff. So it was all completely invisible. You were a lawyer, you did your billings, you did your client, you did professional work. Bills got issued out, they got paid, everything, you know, it was just handled. And then after that, you realize, wow, they had a whole team that did that until we hire. Yeah,
1: everyone's got to pitch in. Now let's 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 talk about women starting a a firm as a woman. That's kind of relatively unique in the IP IP world, which I, I commend you on having a whole team of women. That's wonderful. Have you had any sort of backlash or pushback from sort of the male institution about uh, having a team of women?
0: Um, no, we don't have a whole team of women now. We we started out with women. Um I think simply because that's how that's how we were our teams were made of women. it wasn't really a conscious thing um now there are a lot of women practitioners, so I don't think there's any pushback. I think especially in Singapore, um, women are given uh fairly equal rights, I think um and especially in the area of IP, there's not really uh, a problem. The problem comes in other, maybe other areas of law, for example, litigation, where the hours are long and punishing and that may not gel uh, well with a family life and other responsibilities
1: in a woman's life. Another reason for you to shift from litigation to the, the IP in the early career.
0: That was one. That was one of it. Although in the early career, I also worked very, very odd hours, especially when one starts a firm. You, you work like, I don't know, 16, 17 hour days, wow. you know? So I remember leaving work at say six o'clock, you go and spend time with your family and then driving back to work at say, like 11 o'clock when everybody's asleep and then working till four or five in the morning and then going back again. That is just, that is crazy, um, but necessary for a period of time.
1: My goodness, that is crazy hours. And uh, were you aware of that before you launched your your own firm, or or were you uh, was it taken by surprise, or you just had to do it?
0: I I just had to do it. I mean, you you know, I don't think I knew that was this going to be crazy hours. I worked crazy hours before as a litigator. You, but you don't go back. You you just stay in your office and you just work till the four in the morning or five in the morning. That's happened for trials and all that because you you need a deposition done. You you do it. Um, But I realized at the later point when you your because I'm at a different part in my personal life, so I've got children then, and you don't want to leave them, right? In the early part of my career as a litigator, I didn't have children, So, so that's okay. But in the later part where I started my firm, I realized that other considerations, I had children, so I went home. And then landed up putting them to bed, getting everything settled. Everybody was at the house was quiet. Everybody was asleep, and then doing those silly hours.
1: That's a quite quite a juggle and quite a balance. But yeah, I guess you're you're choosing your priorities, making sure you have some time for the family, and and I guess sacrificing sleep to get it all done. Yeah,
0: sacrificing sleep. was the thing? Once someone asked me, "What what do you do?" My answer was, "I was a juggler." <laughs> I say, yes, at any one time, I have 10 balls in the air. If anything drops, it's a problem.
1: <laughs> well, they, they say if you need something, you don't give it to a busy person. So you, you manage to get a, get a whole lot done, I'm sure. Now, if, if I was to chat with any of your staff, any of your members of team, uh, and and to ask them, what is Reggie's leadership style like? What do you think they would say? I think
0: they would say, and hope I hope they would say that mine is a almost a collegiate kind of a leadership style. I take their views into consideration and I try to work as a team. For me, a team is really important. That's actually the embodiment of one legal. When we are, when we looked at why one, it, the one is for one in spirit. It's, it's um, one in spirit, everybody putting their shoulders to the same wheel, everybody with a joint vision a uh, joint effort and everybody is a team. So I've tried to inculcate that to, to everybody. You know, I, I said, it's it's no point. It's a team. It's like a a team member that you can rely on. It's like a, it's almost like a chair. You know, if you sit on a chair, you expect it to hold your weight. You will one day need that chair because everybody falls ill. It gets an emergency at home. You need your teammate. If you have a virtual chair, you sit down and you fall down, that's that's not a team. That's really just an imaginary team, and nobody wants that. You need a real team. So inculcating a real team spirit where everybody feels part of it and takes ownership and feels for each other as, as colleagues, as friends, as team members, that's, I think, a, a, a challenge for leadership. To make sure that's that vision um, and that passion, you know, in that in that same, because everybody is different, but in that one objective.
1: And uh, everyone in the team has got a different role, but they need to be able to do their role so that the whole team works uh, as a cohesive unit.
0: Yeah, I've I've said this to somebody. our, our firm is our team is like a, a jigsaw, where everybody fits and everybody has a different part, but it fits together beautifully.
1: It's a, it's a great thing to get to that position. I don't know how we, how your staff turnover has been, but uh, I always find it difficult when you're hiring a new staff member to get it right. I mean, everyone puts their best face on during the interview and maybe you have a three-month probation period, and sometimes you get it right, sometimes you get it wrong. How do how do you choose the right people?
0: I don't know. I mean, it's it's hard to choose the right people, to be honest. That, that's true. Um, you only have so much time with them. You kind of know after a few, uh, you know like a few months but I tend to talk about other things. <laughs> I mean I I can see their you know their grades and whatever and their experience it's all there. I mean you do need to talk a bit. You need I do need to make sure that what they say is what they can do. But apart from that it's always interesting to find out what are the other things they do. So if they play team sports you know that you know you can't obviously play football or basketball on your own.
1: <laughs> well, men my age seem to think they do and get uh, injured very well.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you know, if they do, if they play team sports, if they have other activities, that, that's that's quite nice. You know, if they are musical, that's creativity. I
1: know how you can relate to them, and you you work. People like to work with people they like, both across the world and and in the office.
0: Yes, that's right. It's chit chat really, yeah.
1: Now, I remember you saying a little bit earlier on that one of the great things about IP is being able to meet people from around the world at conferences, and I believe you're heavily involved in AIPI with a significant role. What's your role there?
0: Yes, I'm the uh, second Deputy Secretary General of AIPI at the moment. AIPI again, works in teams. Now, teams is very important to AIPI, We have a few teams running uh, on the bureau, Uh, We have the uh, PT, which is a presidential team. And then we have the Secretary General's team. And we have the Reporter General's team. And we are supported with that. We are supported by the General Secretariat that is led by an Executive Director. So all these teams work together for the good of AIPPI and to run AIPPI.
1: Well, it sounds like a, a very important role. And, uh, and uh, how is it that you get to have that kind of role? I mean, I've, I've never even been on a committee. I, I tend to just go to the events, uh, but you've obviously spent a long time. Uh, did you start at a small level conference and just uh, get some experience and, and get all the way up to uh, second deputy secretary general?
0: Yes, well, I started, I well together with a team of other attorneys in Singapore. I started AIPPI, the Singapore chapter. Here about 1998. We were approved in 1998. And then after that, we bid for and got the, I think we ran the conference, the Forum and the Exco here in Singapore in 2007. And I continued to be the, I was the first president of AIPPI Singapore. And I continued to be, to lead it until, oh, for 10 years, until after that conference. Then after that, I stepped down. From being the president, because I think it's important to have renewal and re- retribution. so other people run it. I remain really on the on the uh, committee, but the other people have stepped in to to lead the local chapter, and then I stepped into roles in the international chapter. So I served on the finance advisory committee with the um, information and the background I had in running the conference in Singapore. And subsequently, I also served on different bureau advisory committees and then on the membership committee, which is a very important part of AIPPI because it continues to uh, recognize and minister to the needs of different segments of our membership. That's important because our membership runs across, I think we have some, really like 66 different national chapters and regional, tra- regional groups uh, all across the world. So different people have different, different national groups have different needs and it's important to recognize that and to address it as best we can.
1: So it sounds like the way to get uh, amongst the upper echelon of these organizations is to start local, uh, join your local committee, contribute, help with the conference. I think I remember that conference. That was a great uh, event in 2007. Uh, I'm sure very well run by you. And then work your way up to uh, the, uh, the bureaus of various kinds. So, I mean, what is AIPPI's aim? Uh, why do you think people should go along to AIPPI events?
0: Well, AIPPI's role, ultimate aim is the harmonization of loss. AIPPI was started 125 years ago, and and it's headquartered in Zurich. We celebrated 125-year anniversary uh, last May. So, okay, it's 125 and a bit this year. (laughs) So, But the idea, it was started by industrialists who traded within Europe. Now, it's quite important if you're trading in different countries for the law to be consistent because you don't want to be perfectly fine working in one country to export your goods only to have them hold, held up because there's that, a real problem somewhere else so harmonization of laws is in, is important especially in these days of international trade um not clearly not all laws are harmonized and clearly uh, there are always new things coming up new 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 ways of doing business the metaverse, chat, GPT, everything, there is new. There's always something new in IP all the time. It's never really a boring day's job, really, if you're working in IP. There's new, there's innovation. So with that comes the need for treatment of certain things, a consistent treatment around the world, especially if it happens to be online, because that really is around the world. And there's a, a need also to think about how local laws were treated, whether they'll be relevant. I mean, um, culturally, we're all different. Uh, legally, jurisprudentially, we all have different roots. Developmentally, many countries had different parts of, of the legal development. So, so these, these things are important for businesses. Now, the thing about AIPPI is it looks at these laws um, from a scientific perspective. There's scientific work, there's academic work, there's real real intellectual input in this. So it, there's a great networking place and space, but it's also a great place to develop one's uh, knowledge of the jurisprudential landscape around the world to develop your own expertise, especially for young lawyers, because you de- you de- you then don't look out of the world through one lens. You have multiple lenses and it broadens your worldview. So that's, I think, the great thing about, it. that's what is great about AIPPI. Yeah, that's why I believed in it, to take that step together with friends and colleagues at that point, to start it here, and then to continue still with it. We're still plugging at it all these years later. <laughs>
1: I've got a challenge for you. Uh, so uh, one of my hobby horses is uh, the patentability of software. Software is my background. In Urvia, I had some patents. Bill Trader had some patents. And uh, with the help of One Legal, our patents have been granted in Singapore, which is wonderful. I've had some troubles in some other countries that are not so harmonious. So I think all everyone's laws should change to match Singapore's laws <laughs> so the software is a bit more easy. So if you could do that for me, I would be uh, most grateful.
0: We welcome you on board as one of the members.
1: All right. <laughs> All right, well, okay, all right. I think we've, uh, we'll have to exchange some emails about that. Now, you, you talked when you were uh, uh, employing people about their side interests and their, and their hobbies. Uh, obviously, you've got a very busy working life, but I hear you like to do a bit of trail running as well.
0: Yes. Trail running is something I picked up probably in, in 2019. I'd run before, but never on trail. And in 2019, I was preparing to do the Camino Walk. So that was 150 kilometers um, from, well, sort of Portugal to Spain.
1: That's not a short walk, 150 kilometers.
0: No, it's not. It's, uh, it's a Camino. The, actually, it's the way. There's a movie on it with Martin Sheen, and it's uh, to Santiago. The end point is always Santiago de Compostela. And you can start anywhere. You can start from France. You can start from a bit before. It cuts through parts of France, part of Germany, parts of Spain, Portugal. So, but really it's uh, walking. It's really a walk uh, with God, with Christ. So, um, and we were advised to train for it. I mean, I think that was important because I don't think (laughs) it was 150 kilometers in about a week. So 20 kilometers a day. So it wasn't our usual walk that I usually would take in a normal course of a day, and the advice was also to train on trail because some parts would be, uh, you know, more challenging—the uphills and 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 downhills—and we needed trail shoes. And so I trained in um, Bukit Timah Hill in Singapore, which is not very tall, really, and also,
1: <laughs> what was the name of the hill? Sorry,
0: Bukitima Hill.
1: So I thought Singapore was just one big city, but there are some hills you can climb around.
0: This was a much taller hill at some point, but it, had, it was also quarried, and now uh, part of the outflow of that hill, I believe it's paving Singapore. <laughs> you know? But it's still it's still a hill to the to a city person who normally walks on flat ground
1: <laughs> there's some up and down
0: there's some up and down and also i we are on but also in um mc reservoir which is beautifully done with um with a tropical rainforest it's a cons- it's a basically a conservative conserved area um it's part of the green lung green belt in singapore so and and that's when I I realized um, that running was not only running but long distance running was therapeutic, and trail running was really was really terrific because of the uneven surfaces. You it's interesting and you always it's always challenging, and I realized that I tend to run uphill because I just wanna get it over and done with. And that's the challenge. <laughs> you know, and how how that is. And the Camino walk particularly was, was incredible. I remember one hill in particular where everybody I mean, there's lots of people doing the Camino. So you 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 have, you know, there are pilgrims along the way and you walk and I was oh I can't walk this anymore. So I ran to the top, and the feeling of exhilaration when you reach it and you go, you know, that's fantastic.
1: So so all of these other pilgrims are going on 150 kilometers, see you running past, going up the hill. They thought, show off.
0: <laughs> I hope not. But they're not running. Some of them are doing 600 kilometers. Some of them are doing more. It's, wow. it's 150 is really like the baby's pilgrim walk, and I was fully aware of it. So, I'm just doing a tiny portion and the and the relatively uh easy flat portion. there are some more much more difficult terrain over the mountains in in France. Would you like to try it one day?
1: <laughs> well, uh, yeah, I might be busy that day. Um, <laughs> most people, as they get older, and I don't know how old you are, and I'm not going to ask, tend to reduce the amount of uh, um, uh, dangerous sports. But you're heading straight into the uh, the rocky running uh, with, with Guster.
0: Uh, but I have a good friend. She's exactly the same age I am. We went to school together. She looks like she's 17. And one of the pictures she sent to me was trail running in the Blue Mountains. She's doing, and there's a fantastic shot of the Blue Mountains where she's running. I mean, so no, I have a running guru <laughs> and she is my like, wow, you know, person to follow.
1: Someone to look up to.
0: Yeah, that's absolutely. And, and she helps me also because for running, you don't know, well, it, it wasn't obvious to me until I started, but running stance is very important. So that you don't do damage to your body because it's a constant pounding. And so how you run and the balance and where you place your weight and uh is, is very important so that you there is no list to one side or the other. And also I broke my ankle last year.
1: <laughs> Not trail running, I hope.
0: Uh, no. If I was trail running, it would have been something. I was walking carefully down a street, <laughs> I slipped. I sat on my butt I thought wow, okay I didn't I didn't break my face but I heard my ankle snap and I and it was broken in two places. So you see, just walking down the street. So trail running is really really safe.
1: <laughs> Stay away from those flat pavements they're dangerous.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Well, okay. It was it was a slope pavement, but yeah, stay away from the pavements. I actually basically use the street. I just say we pay road tax. I've never heard anybody pay a pedestrian tax, so I'm I'm staying on the road. They're better maintained, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Less less cracks and lumps. Now we're we're talking about uh, uh, getting older a little bit, uh, but obviously you and I are well away from it. But uh, you like to visit a hospice uh, every now and again. do some uh, volunteer work. Tell me about what that involves.
0: Uh, I volunteer at the uh, Assisi Hospice about once a month. I stopped when my uh, when I broke my ankle and I wasn't mobile. But <laughs> apart from that, I think it's important to. Well, a friend of mine told told me about this. They they need help, obviously, and the the hospice takes care of people who are terminal. Many of them are in there for I don't know two weeks, a month. I go there once a month, so I don't see many patients twice. All right. One of the priests whom I was close to, Father Loazo, he passed. He he was cared for and died in that hospice, and it's managed by the Catholic Church. And it's somewhere I think I can do some good. And they also have a program which is really good called NODA, N-O-D-A. No One Dies Alone. So for the people who don't have people to be with them, then uh, volunteers uh, are scheduled and we go in on a roster basis. I've been there a couple of times and I will go in at six in the morning and sit with them till nine in the morning and someone else comes. And so you're there just to be with them, to pray, to be present. They They may or may not be conscious. Many of them are not but just to be with them. It's like a, a journey, you know? Life's a journey. This is the last bit. And it's just somebody to hold your hand along that journey.
1: No one dies alone. It's a very nice very nice concept and uh, and I'm sure they would appreciate you uh, uh, with your smiling face, holding their hand through those last uh, tough steps.
0: It's a good thing to do. And also it reminds me of our own mortality, of our own journeys, each of us of our own journeys and how fortunate we are and how blessings, good fortune that are gifted are meant to be gifted to others.
1: That's uh, I, I read something about uh, someone likes to often go and uh, look at a cemetery because that's where the end is going to be. Uh, and then when you do that, you're looking straight into the face of death and what's coming afterwards. And that gives you a reminder to enjoy life or make your life useful or whatever it is. It's a different perspective rather than uh, every day, just going every day without thinking about that end spot.
0: Yes, it will be a bit tough if you were never thought of that and to have that suddenly confronting you It's like being not prepared for a trial and then go, whoops. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it's suddenly here. You've got to work crazy hours and, and figure that out. Now, while we're talking about the future, uh, uh, obviously, when you start your own firm and you build it up, there's a certain point at which you don't necessarily want to be doing that all day, all day every day and you want some people to take over uh, to continue it on into the future. Succession planning, I think, is a very challenging thing for uh, small to mid-sized firms. How do you think about succession Planning when it's going to be time for you to step back uh, and take your foot off the gas.
0: Well, I have a very good team, so I empower them, and then I'll see what happens. I don't have. I mean, you're right; it is challenging. Um, I don't really have a succession, like an individual successor that you're grooming. Because that that's hard, and um, I think too much pressure on a team where they are trying to gel, or whenever you have someone new, you know, that they're try- trying to have too many things to, to do. I think they, the challenge is to gel them as a team and then to see how we can grow that further over the years once they grow as lawyers. My, my aim is always to grow somebody, not simply as an employee, but as a lawyer and as a person because a leader is much more than the person at the top. A leader is more like someone also at the bottom to be able to boost and to be able to support and to be able to serve and and to be able to be all that, you know, to be your cheerleader as well as your leader.
1: I, I hear that some people say that leadership is service. Uh, you're there to serve the people you're not you're not holding it over them but you are helping them grow it sounds like you've got a similar philosophy
0: yes servant leadership
1: so uh thinking back to when you were uh uh, just out starting your profession and thinking with all the wisdom and experience that you have now we'll call it midway through your profession what advice would you give to a a young woman starting in the intellectual property field today okay
0: that's hard um to a woman so, a woman, I think it's important to prioritize. Not that it's not important to men, all right? I mean, let's specifically it this way: I think it's important for people to prioritize what they want in lives, in their life. Working crazy hours was traditional, fashionable, normal in the time when I started out. I'm not sure that it's that working crazy hours is all that what it is now anymore. I think people are looking at work-life balance. I think people are getting their act together. It's important, I believe, not to burn the candle at both ends because then you burn out. But if you want longevity in whatever you're doing, is to have that passion in order to continue to light that, that candle and to continue to let it burn like everything it's renewable you know it's renewable energy but it's also energy that's expended so it's to be able to have that passion to constantly renew to recharge to grow and to know that it's part and parcel of what you are and what you want to be
1: i think uh, i could hear the enthusiasm in your voice for trademarks and businesses and innovation that's still here Uh, many years after you started, so you've clearly followed your own advice and still have that enthusiasm for IP. Uh, Reggie, it's been lovely talking to you. Uh, Thank you very much for joining Talking IP and good luck in Singapore.
0: Thank you very much, Justin. It's a pleasure to be here. Nice to catch up.
1: Well, that's it for our latest episode of Talking IP. And thanks to my guest, Regina Quick. Thank you for joining us. And please reach out to connect with me on LinkedIn, where we'll share updates on the release of each episode. Talking IP is brought to you by BillTrader, a fintech solution for IP firms designed to solve the challenges of making and receiving payments between IP firms. One of the key benefits of using BillTrader is the ability to reduce debtor days to one week, removing the cash flow headaches for firms in countries that are net receivers of work. To learn more, visit BillTrader.com. In episode nine, I'll be joined by Agustin Velasquez, a leading IP attorney and Lawtech entrepreneur. Agustin's passion and energy for Lawtech as the future for the IP industry is evident throughout the conversation as he explains the many business ventures that he's working on and bringing to market.